Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the one place to be, the home of common sense, the home of all things uh, to do with the truth, the whole truth, and of course nothing but the truth. You don't hear what we talk about uh, very many other places at all. In fact, in no other places do you hear uh, the kind of calls that we get, uh, the kind of inform information and opinions that we portray out there, uh, and the way that we actually have an awful lot of respect for the people that listen and watch this show, uh, of course, as well. Coming up this morning, Professor Frank Ferrady joins us. We'll get his take on on what's been going on at the BBC for the past week or so, where apparently the nation's broadcaster, um, the uh, the civil sort of state of the place, has gone completely doolally. It looks as though they are at war with each other inside the walls of the BBC. Uh, a slap in the face for BBC licence pages is what it says on the front of the Daily Mail. Even the Guardian, BBC bosses face pressure after you turn over Gary Lineker. Uh, Gary Lineker still makes most of the front pages. Pressure grows on BBC bosses over Lineker climb down. What you would have heard yesterday on this show uh, was the BBC's Tim Davies, Director General, basically uh, outlining how they're going to have a review uh, of their social media policy. Gary Lineker will be told in no uncertain terms that he must adhere to that social media policy. And so the um, laughable kind of ridiculousness goes on because nobody really knows for sure what's happening inside of the BBC. What we can tell you uh, is that basically most people are not very happy because if you do ask the question who runs BBC Sport these days, uh, you, the answer will come back that it is Gary Lineker. But that's not all we're talking about, of course. Uh, Gary Glitter is also in the news this morning. He was recalled to jail yesterday uh, after being found to be in breach of his parole conditions to wit, uh, being in some kind of bail hospital, trying to find his way through the dark web. One can only imagine what it was that he was looking for. Um, but the question surely is this, why on earth was he released? We all asked that question when he was released. He was sentenced to prison for 16 years for sexual offences against children. He was allowed out after eight years. We all said it was wrong, ridiculous and mad. You cannot rehabilitate people uh, who are paedophiles. They are not interested in being rehabilitated. And even if they are, they can't be. They cannot stop being what they are. Therefore, you should never be letting them out. We now find out uh, that even more people have been recalled uh, by the parole system. They've been released early uh, and they've been brought back into, uh, into prison because they can't stay out of the criminal world that they have lived in all their lives, which tells you something about parole and how ludicrous it all is. We'll talk about that uh, coming up over the course of the next uh, couple of hours as well. Also, we'll go over to San Diego. We'll find out what's going on there. Uh, we'll find out precisely what this deal is uh, with our new defence policy, what Rishi Sunak wants to do. Junior doctor strike still going on. Second day, of course. Uh, we'll tell you about the free heroin you can get on the NHS if you happen to live in Scotland. Good luck with that. 0344 499 1000. We need your calls, of course, as well. We might even talk a little bit more about the budget which is coming tomorrow. Rishi Sunak is hot-footing it back from San Diego and California to make sure he can sit there and listen to Jeremy Hunt for an hour, going on and on and on about how he's going to make us all poorer. Can't wait. This is Talk TV. Let's get it on. A very good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Suddenly got very cold again today. I came out of the house thinking, well, it was pretty mild yesterday. It was a bit windy, but it was about 15 degrees. It's gone down to about five today, and I think there's some snow um, sort of circling around um, Talk TV towers here in the middle of London. So if you are out and about, it is pretty chilly, a lot colder than you might expect. Let's get a very warm welcome, though, to uh, Professor Frank Ferrady, author and sociologist, of course. Frank, very good morning to you. Nice to talk to you. Take nice, care. nice to talk to you. Um, I'm interested to get your take on the uh, madness that's been going on and eating the BBC from the inside. Um, it would seem as though people are much more obsessed 
uh, with the BBC perhaps than is healthy for the nation. Uh, but nonetheless, here we are. Uh, it's been a story on the front pages for about the best part of a week. What do you make of it all? Well, the uh, thing that really I find very interesting is how the BBC has become a law unto itself. Yeah. And the way in which it's uh, impossible for any outside body, whether it's the uh, government, whether it's the license fee payers, to actually exert any degree of control. So the BBC is this kind of cultural institution uh, that gets to decide what's the political agenda. Uh, although they're meant to be impartial, uh, impartiality has become a total joke over the last couple of decades, as you only basically hear one script being promoted time and time again. And therefore, people like Gary Lineker aren't just simply uh, football commentators. They're actually cultural and political figures, part of the oligarchy that kind of runs the BBC. And it doesn't really matter you know, what you and I or what ordinary people or what even politicians would like to see. They get to decide. And, and, when, and when, in a rare instance, uh, they get reprimanded, then uh, they demonstrate their power by being able to rebel and revolt. And they know absolutely clearly that the uh, head of the BBC will cave in. They know absolutely clearly uh, that ultimately they hold all the levers of power there. And that's very dangerous because basically what we have is a, 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 a political institution that is culturally hostile to the views of a large number of people masquerading as a public service institution. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because it has kind of spread beyond that culture kind of um, uh, war inside the BBC because the BBC itself, we are told by sources within it, uh, is riven now by people who have this sort of other haves and the have-nots, you know, the people who make absolutely millions and millions of pounds from the BBC and others who work in relatively lowly jobs getting paid a pittance um, but having to kind of behave themselves while the others do what they like. Yes, I mean, I can really understand why, you know, that a lot of people there you know, are on very relatively low salaries mm. and they really resent the fact that these uh, superstars, these celebrities, are able to, uh, in a sense, uh, live in a different cultural universe mm. where they get to decide what can and cannot be done and where their behavior is not subject to the same kind of pressure, the same kind of rules as the, as the plebs who are all inhabiting the, the BBC. So there's that kind of internal tension but I do think that the, the much bigger problem for me is that uh, I pay my license fee uh, and yet I'm, uh, I've got a, a, a service that I don't particularly like. Mm. I, I, I never hear a real genuine debate, but we have two sides given the same kind of opportunity to promote their views, not just political views, but also cultural views. And I just hate, I think what I really hate more than anything is this arrogant sanctimonious sentiment that people like Lineker express that somehow, you know, football, which is a, a lovely, great sport, somehow should be a medium for political opinion right. making. Well, somebody, the, somebody post, post, um, sort of said to me yesterday that wouldn't it be interesting if you actually asked most football fans what they think of Gary Lineker and what they think of his politics, and most of them would disagree with him because most football fans uh, live in very ordinary situations in all the ordinary towns and cities of this country, uh, which he knows very little about. And he's insulated from all of that. And, and there's also this kind of um, um, rather supercilious attitude that if you disagree 
uh, with having completely open borders where nobody's ever asked who they are or uh, asked for ID or, you know, you're letting everybody into the country. Somehow, if you don't agree with that, you're some kind of bigot, some kind of fascist, some kind of, you know, Nazi. Yeah, I, I think uh, when, you, when you think about the world today where people like Lineker can so casually use the word Nazi uh, towards people mm. who which disagrees uh, and essentially basically says, you better shut up because Nazis are not allowed to have a voice. You kind of begin to realize that we live in a highly polarized world, which continually attempts to quarantine other opinions from being expressed. Because what the point, whole point about the whole metaphor of being a Nazi, of, 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 of that term being used, is to silence dissident opinion. Mm. And what's really worrying is that, you know, we're not talking about a politician here, a seasoned politician, a, a political operator. We're talking about a football commentator who's, who's using, who's weaponizing football, who's essentially harnessing football towards a very clear political objectives. And mm. I, I just find that uh, extremely troublesome as a football fan, but also as an ordinary citizen. Yeah. And, I mean, the BBC really has rolled over here. I mean, do you think that the uh, um, uh, the chairman will remain in place? Because the baying mob have now got themselves into full uh, fury. They now re they now think that they've won, that Gary Lineker and his nice, kinder, gentler politics have won the day uh, and that soon we'll get rid of all the Tories in the BBC. I mean, that's kind of where it's going. Well, it doesn't really matter whether he's going or not because he's quite impotent. Although he's formerly the head of the BBC... He's really uh, limited by the fact that the balance of power in his organization is one that's continually constraining him from, in a sense, uh, embarking on an independent path. I myself, I think that uh, it's highly likely that he'll go. It depends entirely upon the government, whether the government has got the will uh, to kind of stay firm and, and has got the will to basically stick for the kind of political principles that it's meant to be uh, promoting. I'm not really sure, you know, sort of how committed they are and, and how willing they are to risk uh, taking on the BBC. And I suspect what they're finally realizing is that they lost control over every single political and cultural institution that's run, uh, 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 run by, uh, by public money. They don't control the civil service. They don't control uh, the educational sector. And they obviously, they don't control the museum and uh, sector and the BBC. It's almost like as if they're aliens in their own territory. Mm. It really is. It's an extraordinary, it's been an extraordinary time. And it's been sort of topped, topped off, by, by the way, by the end of last week's um, situation with Fiona Bruce. Uh, Fiona Bruce, who apparently um, is being accused of supporting domestic violence by issuing what I would have said was a perhaps rather clumsy um, sort of um, a piece of information that she was obviously asked to hand out. Uh, when the subject of domestic violence came up on Question Time last week, um, uh, when Yasmin Alibi-Brown accused Stanley Johnson of breaking his wife's nose. And clearly, as we all know in that sort of situation, she had to clarify something. Um, as I say, it, it did look a bit clumsy and all of that, but she's now had to step down from her role as an ambassador for some charity. Now, maybe that tells you something about why journalists shouldn't be ambassadors for charities. But I think there's a, a bigger issue here, which is the climate of hysteria, yeah. where you make an act of miscommunication, where, as you say, you say something that's a little bit clumsy, and suddenly you become a cultural criminal, and suddenly you become accomplice in, in, a, in abuse and, mm. and, and 
and basically condoning violence, domestic violence. And I think that silly way of, of, uh, of behaving where literally all you need is a couple of people to complain. They go on Twitter, they kind of make a fuss on social media and your life becomes hell. And I, I really feel for this particular woman, Fiona Bruce, because in a sense, she's done nothing that's remotely wrong. And yet she's forced to apologize for making a very human error that right. you and I would make, you know, two or three times a day. And yet, you know, suddenly, you know, she's becomes a, this different individual, this nice person is suddenly recast into a role of this cultural monster. Mm. And that the ease with which this happens should make all of us think about what can we do to contain this climate of hysteria? Yes. I'm not sure what you can do because it does seem to be growing, you know. People have to apologise every single day of the week. People have to step down or step aside or step back, you know, because of something that's been said. It's a mad kind of uh, world and it's a mad way to live, isn't it? It is, but, you know, all we need is about two or three TV personalities, a few sports personalities to refuse to play the game. All we need is a small cohort of prominent individuals who refuse to apologise, mm. explain, OK, I'm sorry, I, I made a little mistake, but, you know... We're human beings. Haven't you made a mistake like this in your life? And I think we have to be much braver in containing this pressure uh, that is uh, focused upon us. And I, and I really do wish that we abolished the apology, this ritual of apology, which has become so trivial now that, it, that its original meaning has been lost. Yeah. You just stand up and say, look, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to live in a world where I cannot open my mouth for, for the fear of offending somebody for a fear of, of saying the wrong words. That is life. In everyday life, we make those kinds of mistakes. Mm. We need to forgive each other for those. Yeah, I think that's a very good way uh, to end this particular segment. Stay with us, though, Frank. We've got more to talk about coming up. Uh, we're going to be getting more stuck into some of the things that Frank's been writing about uh, in the past week or so as well. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Frank Ferrey, the author and sociologist. He's written a piece saying, good riddance to winter of 22-23. Well, I wish we could say good riddance to it, Frank, but I woke up this morning thinking, well, maybe spring is on the way um, and it starts snowing. So I'm not sure we can say goodbye to it yet, but uh, tell us about the uh, the lockdown and the effect it's had on us all becoming germaphobes. Yeah, I, I, I think it is very interesting the way in which... Um the lockdown experience and, and the way that people have been treated and uh, become become the target of alarmist fear campaigns mm. has left a legacy. And when I talk to people, there's quite a significant minority of individuals who've adopted a kind of lockdown syndrome to the point at which they become much more wary of human contact. They become much more wary of, of going out and interacting with people. People who more or less believe that the minute they cough or sneeze, uh, it's a precursor to getting COVID or mm. some other nasty disease. And I think the, uh, the wear and tear of that lockdown experience has made us, or at least a section of society, much more anxious, much more insecure, uh, far less able to get on with life in the way they've done beforehand. And I think that that culture of fear, which a uh, section of the government were responsible for, is something that we need to think about because... You know, Britain needs to be a, a nation of risk takers. We need to be a nation that likes adventure, that's prepared to put themselves on the line rather than behaving like as if we're uh, continually ill and yeah. powerless 
and vulnerable and not able to take control of our lives. Well, I mean, we've seen the effect on children, haven't we? Several studies have now been done to say that, you know, locking children away, you know, not allowing them to go to school, not allowing them to go out and see their friends, has had a terrible effect on, on not only their mental health, but on their general attitude to uh, adventure. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the biggest problem for me in the lockdown was our inability to understand that children needed to uh, carry on with their lives. They needed to enjoy the day-to-day experience of interacting with other children. They needed to go to school. And the risks that they were confronted with were uh, such that those kinds of uh, behaviors, giving them their freedom, was entirely logical and, and, and based on good science. And instead, what we did, we basically quarantined children from the real world precisely at a time when their whole life and their whole future depended upon interacting with other kids and, and, and getting on with life. And now we take the consequences of that. And uh, that, to me, is something that we, it's a problem that we, it's going to be with us for a very, very long yeah. time. And, I mean, we live now in a very fast-moving news cycle. And let's not forget, Frank, that um, the lockdown files that we learned so much about, thanks to Isabel Oakeshott, last week, um, shows that the government's decision-making process was very, very flawed and not based in any kind of scientific analysis whatsoever. I mean, I can understand uh, government making mistakes. A very new situation. I think anybody could have messed up. But what I do find troubling from the lockdown files is that they always put their political interest and, and, and their political mm. ideals before the actual pandemic. And they were much more interested in impression management in giving a good impression that we're in control than with actually tackling the, the real problem, the health problem mm. that confronted us. Well, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at the sort of overall, um, I don't know, month in the last, the, the month in the life of Rishi Sunak, shall we say, you know, he's flying back from San Diego today where he's apparently made some kind of uh, deal with Australia and the United States of America, which may or may not be a good thing, which may or may not have some influence in, in keeping China, um, you know, in its place. We've also got the, um, you know, the Windsor framework, which may or may not make any difference to Brexit in, uh, for anybody else who doesn't happen to be in Northern Ireland. We've also got the, the small boats policy. We passed the law last night in the first reading, uh, which probably won't do very much. It's all about what it looks like, isn't it? Uh, I think totally. I think politics always had a, a certain dimension of impression management that was, was also always a, a small part of the whole business. Whereas today, what we're seeing is an unprecedented emphasis on the media, on public relations, mm. on creating the right kind of uh, mood, uh, rather than with the content of policies. And when I think back of every single initiative over the last five years, something like that grotesque tragedy around HS2, all the way through these uh, silly attempts to stop the vote people coming through, uh, basically attempts that you knew would never work, they were entirely for public consumption. You realize that, uh, that at, at some point in time, we need a government that actually means business. You know, they would rather, you know, a government that's prepared to be unpopular in the short run in order to do something effective rather than just simply uh, continue on in the present trajectory. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. But whether or not that will save them, I don't know, because Labour are still, you know, kind of nowhere to be found on so many issues, particularly when it comes to uh, the sexualisation of children. You've also written about, um, you know, the trans um, questions about whether you can define what a woman is. You know, Kirsten still struggles with that. 
you know, and they still don't really have a policy on immigration. They don't really have a policy on the EU. Yeah, I mean, Labour actually is very fragile. Its base of support is, is, is actually fairly weak. Uh, it's, an, its position in the polls is entirely due to the incompetence and the stupidity of the Conservative Party. And the reason why they might win is because the Conservative Party has decided that it's going to just simply fall apart and eat each other up. And it seems to me that uh, everything, you know, the, the balance at the moment is such that if you did manage to find a serious political leader and a serious political leader that could galvanize a number of people around him or her, you could make things happen. Uh, the Conservative Party has got to decide whether it's a party of individual, ambitious individuals who don't care about anything other than their career or whether it's a grown-up, mature party. And at the moment, uh, the jury is out on that one. Yeah, I think the jury is still out. And I don't think it's by any means a shoe-in for Labour to get uh, a win at the next election, do you? No, I, I think that if you look at Labour's performance on the key issues of our time, they come across as singularly unconvincing. The, the front bench you know, is also in the business of impression manage, in management. It's very, very clear that they're very hollow politicians we don't have any strong views about anything. The only thing that they have strong views about is the importance of getting elected. Mm. Uh, but everything is about getting elected rather than anything serious, that, that any of the issues that our nation needs. Yeah, to they, go. they don't really stand for anything at all, which is unfortunate, really. Uh, Professor Frank Ferrady, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, author and sociologist there giving us his view uh, on the current state of things right here in the United Kingdom. Because if there is going to be an election over the course of the next sort of 12 to 18 months, then surely to God we should know what it is that we're being asked to vote for. The Labour Party won't tell us. We've got a budget coming up this week. Is that going to make you richer or poorer? Have a guess. It's probably not going to make you richer. There's not going to be any tax coming back. You hear people all the time now from various economists to Tory MPs, oh, now's not the time to give a tax break. Now's not the time to cut people's taxes. Well, always now is the time to cut people's taxes, I think you'll find, because the more money people get to keep, the happier they are and the more they'll spend. It's quite simple, really. Coming up, we're going to talk about Gary Glitter and how on earth he got released after only serving half of his sentence, only to be recalled back into prison just a couple of weeks after he was let out. It's mad, I tell you. This is Talk TV. back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, here with you all the way through until one o'clock. Peter Cardwell is in for Ian Collins today, uh, and then of course it's Vanessa Feltz, and then uh, Jeremy Carl live at 7pm, uh, it's Piers Morgan at 8, and of course uh, it's the talk at 9, uh, which includes me uh, this particular evening. Um, hopefully the weather will have cleared up a bit by then, but let's talk about the other big story uh, involving somebody called Gary on the front page this morning. It's Gary Glitter back in jail, uh, front page of the sun, pop pedo nailed by the sun. This is because Gary Glitter was found to be uh, in a bail hostel, basically, filmed discussing accessing the dark web as he used a smartphone, um, and he was caught out by the sun. Uh, they ran the story. Um, and now, of course, they're talking uh, to forensic investigators about what it was that he was actually looking for and what he was trying to access on the dark web. But what this tells me, more importantly than anything that he was up to, is that 
the parole system once more has let us all down because he should never have been released after only serving half of a 16-year sentence uh, for sexual offences against children. Paedophiles should not be being let out halfway through their sentence. It's absolutely ridiculous. Let's talk uh, to Di Davis, who's going to be with us very shortly. He's the former chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police and a former ambassador of the child protection charity Kidscape. But it really is extraordinary to me because there's a similar story uh, also doing the rounds today, which is say, which says that basically um, something like a third of all prisoners who are released on parole end up going back inside uh, within a very short period of time, within a month, basically, of being released. You know, it seems incredible to me. One in three prisoners released uh, in sort of early days because they've supposedly been uh, well behaved or because they seem to have been rehabilitated. Um, they're all going back to jail. There's something wrong with the system, surely. But let's talk to Di Davis, former chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police, former ambassador of the child protection charity Kidscape, because, as I said, Gary Glitter has been recalled to prison for basically breaching the terms and conditions of his release. He was released halfway through a 16-year sentence, and we said at the time he shouldn't have been released, and now it looks as though, once again, I'm afraid, we were proved right. Di, very good morning to you. Yes, good morning to you. Thank you very much for, for joining us, Di. I mean... Obviously, the parole system is sort of creaking and, and not working terribly well. We've got a story this morning that says that one in three prisoners released on probation is recalled to jail, um, which tells you that they probably shouldn't have been released in the first place. Um, and when it comes to paedophiles, surely to God, releasing somebody like Gary Glitter halfway through his sentence was a mistake. Well, I agree with you. I don't think he should ever be released. If you actually look up his history, going back to the late 70s, the man has not stopped abusing or dealing in child pornography. Yeah. He should have been given a whole life sentence like these two ex-police officers who are equally as guilty and wicked in their way. Yeah. But, you know, the problem is the sentencing. I've been looking up the sentencing going back to 2003 and the various acts. It is so complex, yet the most of us, if you uh, look at somebody's history, as I have done, this man will never be reformed. What kind of idiot judge thinks he will? And he could have got a life sentences, as far as I understand the law. So I simply don't understand why this judge who sentenced him and other judges in this country, you know, the average is about five years, which means normally they're out in two and a half. Mm. And then we're surprised when they go back and, and, and rape and pillage again. Yes. You just couldn't make it up. Well, because it's not difficult to work out what Gary Glitter is going to do if you release him from prison. He's going to go straight back to what he did before. Uh, he was, let's not forget, so he was sentenced to 16 years in prison for sexually abusing three schoolgirls who were underage. Now, that's what he's been doing all of his life. Sometimes he did it abroad, sometimes he did it here. Um, but you have to not just blame the justice system. I think you have to blame, and the judges, I think you have to blame the parole boards as well, because we've seen several cases, haven't we, of the parole boards letting people out. Colin Pitchfork was another one, who was a double murderer, uh, who raped and tortured two schoolgirls separately, and then suddenly he came up for parole 25 years later, and they let him out. And guess where he went? He went to a school and was seen peering in through the, uh, the railings at some young women. And so he got taken back in as well. There's something very wrong with the parole system. 
Well, yes, you're quite right. The parole system, although uh, in Gary's case, he would have automatically, as I understand it, being allowed out. And yet, the way next time, he has to go before a parole board. And any, any parole board should look back, as I have done, into his dreadful history. He's banned, I think, from 16 different countries. Yes. An evil man. And yes, somebody thought, this man, that only 16 years. Well, it wasn't good enough. He should have had a life sentence. Yeah. I don't care. What, what anyone else says, in my opinion, he and anyone who does this kind of offence, whether you're a teacher, priest, a policeman, you go to prison. If you do this to children, uh, you go to prison for life. End of story. Well, exactly right. I mean, I f famously up in Scotland once interviewed a, a paedophile who was released from prison. He came into my uh, TV, uh, radio studio voluntarily uh, and we sat and talked about his problems. And he said... I should never be released back into the public because he said, I'm going to finish my interview with you now and I'm going to go across to that local shopping centre uh, and I'm going to watch people uh, and I'm going to become aroused by doing so. And the people he was talking about were children. And he said, I cannot be left around children. I shouldn't be out of prison. I, there's nothing that will ever cure me. Well, you just answered in one respect your own question. I mean, obviously, there are some possibly... Uh, on the minor fringes that we could try and rehabilitate. But I, I'm sceptical. I've been in this game half a century and I've yet to see a, a converted one, ha having spent a lifetime dealing with them and, and other wicked, wicked people in my career. I, I, I just I just think we fundamentally need to look at how we deal this. And you know, he, he was let off several offences yeah. because we couldn't, couldn't convict him from. But if you actually look at the track record, this man should never be released again, and neither should anyone else like these convicted police officers who've raped and, and pillaged women. Dreadful, dreadful yeah. creatures. They should never be out, in my opinion. Indeed. I mean, talking of, of badly behaved police officers, we've got another story today. Data from National Police Chiefs Council says there were 524 complaints made by members of the public against 867 officers uh, and staff in England and Wales police forces between October 21 and March 22. Uh, these are all cases um, about men mistreating women in one way, shape or form, and only about 1% of them uh, were actually sacked. Well, I, I, again, I, I'm not here to defend any uh, criminality, particularly against women, I'm passionate against uh, anyone who attacks women, and indeed, but I'm also passionate about uh, chief constables who don't investigate, and you hear horrendous stories of how time and time again these officers have come to notice. Now, in fairness, everyone is innocent and proved guilty. And the statistics I read again this morning was that the 800 does go back 10 years. Mm. That's still 800 too many. And I don't know what's happened to the police force. I retired some time ago. Yeah. We weren't perfect by any means, but it's horrendous. And I, I do look again at sort of the kind of leadership we now have um, in many, many forces, as I've discussed many times with you. Yeah. You know, woke is in. And unless you're a woke-style chief constable, um, you won't get it. And it's unfortunately like selecting like and has been for so long. I was a street cop, and that's where you learn your business it's also how you learn to know your men and women under your command. But if you don't walk the shop floor, you'll never know what they're like. And mm. that's why we need to be strong on discipline. We need to be strong on leadership. And I'm afraid in many counts, and it's a shame because there are 140,000 men and women in the police forces and civilians on top of that. 
most of them are good. And I keep saying that because they are. My own son is mm. a police officer in London. He's as appalled at the behavior of some of his colleagues, alleged. I mean, let's face it, I was also critical of the commissioner saying, I'll put three to four before the courts every week or every what have you. Well, in fairness, even they are entitled to a fair trial. Yes. And if you go before a judge and your own commissioner says he's probably guilty, what does that say? That's not fairness either. So police officers are entitled to a fair trial like anyone else. Yeah. It is, um, it is an extraordinary situation, though, to have so many police officers going up before a judge on charges of one kind or another, some of them quite serious. But, Di, listen, good to talk to you. We've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Di Davis there, former chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police. Incredulous, as I am, uh, that Gary Glitter was ever released in the first place. Never mind released halfway through his sentence. Absolutely extraordinary. He's also been a former ambassador for the child uh, charity, the children's charity Kidscape. So he knows a thing or two about some of these ghastly creatures that inhabit the earth and who wish to do harm and sexually assault children. Gary Glitter should never be released. It's as simple as that. Not after seven years, not after another eight years, not after another 16 years, just never. What's the point? You know exactly what he's going to do. You know exactly where he's going to go. And unfortunately, other people will be harmed as a result. So keep him inside. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, all the way through with you until one o'clock. Peter Cardwell sitting in for Ian Collins today. Uh, he'll be telling us what's coming up on the show uh, just before one o'clock. Big day tomorrow, of course, for Peter and for Parliament. Uh, it's the budget day. Not only is it Prime Minister's questions, but it's also uh, the budget. Jeremy Hunt will be unveiling his plans for bringing Britain back, for making Britain successful, economically growing once more. I'm not sure it's going to be good news for anybody, though. We'll keep a check on it right here, of course, as we always do on Talk TV. We'll bring you all the developments and all the lead up to the budget and the statements that are going to be made uh, tomorrow around about midday uh, just after PMQs. Probably 12.30 is when you'll see Jeremy Hunt for the first time. Uh, lots more for us to talk about in this hour though. We're going to be talking about the junior doctors strike. I have zero sympathy for junior doctors, says Mark. Yesterday I saw them singing, dancing and laughing whilst people have their medical treatment jeopardised. The doctors really seem to care yesterday and as they don't about patients, why should I care for them? Well I think a lot of people, Mark, would see uh, your side of that particular story. We're also going to talk to Molly Kingsley about sex education in schools and exactly what it is that schools are doing wrong. First up, though, let's talk to Sir Simon Mayle, uh, KBE, former British Army officer, because we've got a big story breaking from California in San Diego, uh, where Britain, Australia and the United States of America have signed a new pact, basically, which has made China say uh, that they are treading a path of error and danger. Uh, they're building basically a fleet of attack submarines. Britain's going to double its fleet. Um, and Rishi Sunak's been warning about a difficult and dangerous decade ahead. Let's find out from Sir Simon Mayle what that all means. Sir Simon, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Very nice to see you again, Mike. Good yeah, morning. Good to talk to you. Um, it's quite a significant development, this, isn't it? I mean, the Australian manoeuvre, if you like, is, is something that's not made the French too pleased about uh, the fact that, that we're all in cahoots. But what do you make of China's response to this, suggesting that this is a path of error and danger? Well, in the words of Profumo, or whatever, Mandy Rice, they, <laughs> they would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> if they complain that people are worried about China, the Americans, the Australians and ourselves, you know, flexing our muscles a bit mm. or making it strategic intent, uh, they are very aware that it's precisely because everybody else has their worries about China. So I, I think we should absolutely expect that from China because they'd love us all to not be involved, uh, not be uh, developing our defence capabilities, not be joined at the hip. 
uh, with allies in the Indo-Pacific region. Yes. And I mean, as far as the way the Indo-Pacific region is sort of um, uh, governed, if you like, by China, because it kind of is, isn't it? China sort of swans around in that region pretty much doing what it likes, really. Well, it does. Uh, you know, there really is a standoff. We're, we're, we're very focused, obviously, on domestic issues and the economy, quite rightly, because uh, defence, you know, is always in a better place when the economy is booming. Um, but the reality is we've got, you know, Ukraine, we've still got Iran, which hasn't gone away. And North Korea's, um, you know, still bubbling under. Um, and, uh, and China is, is, is huge. And as um, uh, the integrated review or the refresh has said, uh, the issue of China and its growing strength and its intentions are going to be with us frankly, for the rest of rest of my life. Uh, and this is a, a, a huge country that uh, has its own problems, but corralling it and constraining it from it, uh, sort of aggression or at least belligerence in the, their, their part of the world is, is difficult, but it is very important, a very important thing for us to be undertaking in, in partnership with close allies. Yes, and as AUKUS is kind of formed, if you like, is it, is it a partnership of equals, would you say? Well... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's like NATO is supposed to be partnership with equals, but the Americans produce about 90% of the capacity. Um, what I say is in, in equals, it's people who share the same values. Um, these are the key members of the five eyes, which you know well, Mike, the people we absolutely trust at the highest level with intelligence, with nuclear secrets. And it's no surprise the Australians, the Americans and ourselves are there. Nice to have the Canadians there, Pacific power as well. Um, but it's hugely important. And of course, Australia may be small, but it's in a very important part of the world. We may be smaller than the Americans, but we're an absolute linchpin in NATO and part of the transatlantic link. So this, this switch to the Indo-Pacific, and it's not really a switch so much as a re-emphasis, is important. It does go back to what was a trail in your headlines, of course, uh, you, and, you and whose army type yeah. thing. So uh, you know, defence has got to be coming back up the... Uh, uh, back up the political equation. Yeah, there's no question that the Ukraine war has kind of focused everybody's mind on that, hasn't it? Because obviously in the West, uh, generally speaking, the view was, well, we're not really going to have another Cold War. We don't really need as much hardware as we used to have. We still don't need as many people as we used to have. I mean, people are complaining here that despite this new investment and new defence capability being spoken about, we've still got more uh, to do because we still need to bulk up the actual numbers of the people in the armed forces. Well, that's right, Mike. I mean, not, almost none of that five million uh, that was uh, mooted yesterday uh, goes to the armed forces. Mm. You know, defence people associate with, you know, soldiers, ships, aircraft, helicopters, etc. Much of this is for security. Very wise. Intelligence, uh, cyber, uh, diplomacy, training people in Mandarin, etc. Mm. And of course, 1.9 billion for building back these stocks. That shouldn't come out of 
defense that comes from the treasury we're not we're not we're not funded to, 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 to the sort of level of ammunition expenditure that has been the equivalent of giving it to the ukrainians mm. quite rightly but this should just be backfilled by the treasury to say so say it's an uplift of defense spending is is really false and Tobias Elwood is quite right to point out that that five million headline figure is, is pretty flaky when it comes down to the three major services when you take all the other bits out. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, is Rishi Sunak going to get permission, do you think, from the Treasury? Is he, you know, politically, is he in a good place in terms of getting more money for the armed forces? Well, I think politically, you know, the Tory party, um, you know, this is red meat to Tory voters. Mm. Uh, defence, I was, I was very pleased at the discussion when James Cleverly gave the announcement yesterday to find the bipartisan nature of support for uh, an understanding of how perilous the world is and uh, how Britain should be taking a lead. Um, but inevitably, it, it goes down to fine rhetoric, but there's no parsnips. Um, and so I think, you know, we, there's an education uh, role for government, a leadership role with, with the British public, as there is, I have to say, for every Western every Western leader. We've taken a holiday from history and we've had a, a really rude awakening uh, with the invasion of uh, Ukraine and, yeah. um, and and the continuing growth of, uh, of China's military power in the, in the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah, and it's money we're just going to have to find. So, Simon, thanks very much indeed. I'm going to let you go because the, the, the signal isn't brilliant. So, Simon Mayle, KBE, there saying that uh, it's right to say that, yes, this money needs to be spent, but also what's going to need to happen uh, is that the military spending is going to have to also encompass more recruitment of more people because the size of the armed forces themselves have gone down quite significantly over the last 10 years or so, and what they need is more actual boots on the ground, for coin a phrase. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up in a little while, Molly Kingsley's going to join us. She wants to talk a bit about parents and what they should know about what sex education is going on in the schools where their children are attending because I think there's an awful lot of primary schools uh, which are under fire right now for teaching things that an awful lot of parents would rather uh, their children weren't learning at such a young age. But, you know, um, this is the problem with uh, allowing... Um, authorities to take control of things like school sex education because it should be pretty clear what the curriculum is for that. It should be pretty clear. You saw, for example, that situation in the Isle of Man uh, where um, they basically stopped all sex education in Isle of Man schools because of the way that things had kind of spiralled out of control. They had a case of a drag queen going in to teach primary school children about all manner of sex acts, which seemed wrong on so many levels that it just wasn't even... Uh, funny. And the idea that um, somehow uh, the, the drag queen was the problem, it actually wasn't, although that's not exactly one of the greatest ideas anybody ever had. But it's the fact that they're being taught things which they really don't need to know at that sort of age. It's not something that I talk about an awful lot, but we'll see what Molly has to say about it. Also, we're going to talk about the uh, junior doctor's strike, of course, as well. Um, Scribble says, rape prescription heroin, most addicts don't want it. It's not street heroin, but it's a synthetic product that doesn't give any high. We've been here before. Do you remember the 1980s? Well, exactly right. I mean, I don't understand why you would actually spend £4 million in the NHS in a programme, which I know is a small amount of money. This is what they always say. The, the apologists for the NHS will always say, oh, you know, it's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean. £4 million. And I mean, that's what's wrong with the NHS. They feel like that is not actually a great deal of money. Well, guess what? It is a great deal of money and you could do an awful lot more with it. Um, than furnish 26 people who are junkies with fake heroin. 
so that some of them can have overdoses. I mean, what is the bloody point? Um, how about this uh, from Mike? He says, Mike, the BBC tax is outdated. I don't pay it because I don't like the lefty rubbish on TV. Lineker can say what he wants. I don't pay his outrageous wages. I think he should be sacked. Well, and Simon from Essex, you are 100% right about the paedophiles. They will never change their spots. It's in their DNA. Unfortunately, absolutely and utterly true. And one here from Phil, uh, who says, Good morning, Mike. Keir Starmer has openly admitted he'd rather be in Davos uh, than in government. So there you go. It's a lost cause from the start, straight from the horse's mouth. Well, I mean, you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Let's talk to Professor Carol Secura, because uh, the doctors are on strike for a second day. Um, I didn't think very many people noticed yesterday, Carol. Very good morning to you. But um, there must be, they must be having some effect on uh, the ability for hospitals to actually see people and carry out procedures. They are. <coughs> Emergencies are protected. So if you get knocked over by a bus in London, don't worry, you'll be looked after. Uh, and the system is well in place for that. Mm. I think the difficulty is that we've got a huge backlog of routine care going on at the moment, not just in my specialty, cancer, but in everything. Yeah. People needing eye operations, hip operations, they're just waiting. So you say, well, take three days out. How's that going to affect it? It affects it more than just the three days, because it means you've got to cancel things, you can't start up immediately. You've also got unexpected things happening. There's more effort going on to, to look after the emergencies. You haven't got so many mm. doctors in the place. So all that's going to happen is the backlog going to grow probably by about two weeks for this. Yeah. And that's how I predict it. And the, the government's not being really honest about the backlog. I think they're being uh, woolly about whether it's 5 million, 7 million, 10 million. You keep hearing these figures. And if it's 10 million, which I I suspect it is about 10 million people are waiting for something from the NHS, yeah. then that's, you know, a tenth, nearly a tenth of the population. Yeah. Sorry, nearly a, 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 you know, a fifth of the population yeah. sitting there waiting for something. It's crazy. I know, it really is. Well, I've seen an even worse figure than that because there are supposedly 7 million waiting for their sort of first uh, um, opportunity to be treated. But I'm told there's another 10 million waiting for their second one because they've seen they've been seen once, but then they've got to have something else done. And there's, there's a sort of secondary queue, if you like, that nobody really talks about. I think the other problem, Mike, is the, the the strikes, not just the junior doctors, but the the nurses and who else is going to join in the strikes, is a disaffection of a system that's highly bureaucratized and makes people feel undervalued in it. Mm. It's not just about money. I mean, you know, the hardliners in the in the unions, whether it's the BMA or the nurses union, say it's about money, but it's 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 just, you know, when I was a junior doctor. I had a great time. I worked far more hours than anyone would these days. But you were well looked after. You were treated with respect. You got breakfast made for you in the canteen. They right. asked, what, how do you like your eggs, for goodness sake, in a mm. big teaching hospital? Yeah. You can't even get an egg in a teaching hospital now. Uh, it's uh, it's just changed. You were valued, and now you're not valued. I think that's the same for whole of society. And is that a, a, a problem inside of the NHS then? I mean, it's not. I mean, one of the bugbears of mine, and I, I see that some junior doctors are blaming um, Steve Barclay for not seeing the unions earlier and not meeting with them earlier and all of that sort of delaying factors that went on. Um, my belief is that they were trying to do that on the basis that they were hoping the inflation would come down and then they would say, well, we can't give you that inflation pay rise because the inflation is not what it was. But... I often say you can't keep blaming the government for things that are going wrong inside a system which is run by people other than the government. 
Exactly. And in fact, you know, there are 40 of these new integrated care systems appointing managers at 240,000 a, a year. Mm. I mean, where does this money come from? Yeah. I and mean, that's the first thing I'd cut. Changes in management where the same old boys are promoted again from one job to another, sometimes getting redundancy money from the old job. I mean, yes. it goes on since I began in the NHS. It's a, it's a club, a management club, if you like. And mm. the idea that doctors can get sucked into it so i sympathize with the junior doctors up to a point i think you're right uh everyone's suffered in the last 20 years i mean no one's salary has gone up in real terms because what you go to a supermarket whether it's a, a can of beer or uh, a chicken and chips it's mm. costing a lot more now than it was even two years ago right. so we're all suffering well we are but i mean i watched a sort of um, as we call it a vox pop from the picket line yesterday uh, on jeremy carl's show and this junior doctor said that she'd only started in august of last year and she was already burned out well look i mean i understand that it's a tough job and i understand that you know um it may not have been what you were expecting it to be but if you're going to burn out uh, within sort of seven months of working in a job that you chose to do then you were either very badly informed about what the job was or you're just a bit of a snowflake you're right. The, the burnout thing is a modern age thing. We never got burnt out. No. I can tell you. Uh, we just uh, carried on. Right. And you may be tired. And uh, but and the whole thing is, you're right. You, if you become a doctor, you have to train for at least four and a half or five years, mm. sometimes longer. And then when you get there, you're beginning again as a postgraduate trainee in a specialty like mine. And and then yeah, that takes another seven years. So yeah. And there's, you know, the way you stop burnout is you have friends yeah. and you go to the bar together, you have meals together, you talk about your problems in an informal way and you yeah. laugh. You yeah. And also you structure your life. I mean, it's not it's not it's, you know, penal servitude you're signing up for. It's the NHS. You're a doctor. Um, you're not making such bad money. I mean, this nonsense that they came out with yesterday that, you know, baristas at PrEP make the same amount per hour as junior doctors. Well, it might even be true, but you're not going to tell me that the end result is that they make the same money because they don't because what these no. nhs striking workers never tell you is how much overtime they get paid how much the pension actually means to their to their kind of package as a general rule and how much they get um when they move up into the grades where they're up sort of in the 60s and 70s uh, every single year that's right it's an investment and you look at any profession whether it's accountancy the legal profession the guys at the top the older guys are making a lot more money and that's how it always has been mm. i think the problem is a disaffection with a system that's just not working people the patients are grumpy the patients get aggressive and the only person they get aggressive with are the doctors the nurses mm. and the reception staff uh, because that's all they see they don't have to get aggressive with the politicians who run the whole system because it's a politicized system or the management who they see that i tell you the toilets in management offices are always spotless that's not the same if you go into the front entrance of a hospital it's no. often said you can judge how well a hospital's run by going and looking at the cleanliness of the first toilet you come to in the entrance yes. and it's not a bad way of doing it i mean you go around many hospitals like i've been around mm. No, absolutely right. Well, it's a shame that more people cannot be like you, Dr. Kalsikor, I'm afraid. But if only they all were, the NHS would be a much better place, I'm sure. Thank you very much indeed, consultant oncologist. Of course, uh, Carol Sikura uh, has been a friend of this station and a friend of the show for a long time. A uh, very sensible individual who looks at medical matters and looks at what is wrong and doesn't see government's hands in absolutely everything that is a problem. Because if you're working in the NHS... Surely you knew what you were going to be doing before you signed up for it.
And all these junior doctors are going, oh, we're all burned out. Well, maybe the job is not for you. Maybe you should get a job working as a barista at Pret, if that's what you prefer. If you say you can make the same money there, why wouldn't you? Why would you drive yourself mad? Why would you go into the, uh, an early grave because you've been too stressed out? Don't do it if you don't want to do it. We wouldn't want you in it anyway. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have moved into the afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and as ever, the sky has turned blue. Once again, uh, these skies have been very gloomy uh, since the start of this morning. In fact, there was a bit of snow, there was a bit of rain, a bit of freezing rain, a bit of hail. It wasn't very pleasant at all. Uh, but a couple of hours of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, it all becomes clear. People can see further, they can see better. Uh, it looks like the outlook has improved immensely uh, just by the simple fact of your thoughts, my thoughts, our decisions that we make uh, and the information that we partake in uh, for you. Coming up right now, let's talk to Craig McKinley, Conservative MP for South Thanet, because last night in the House of Commons, uh, the immigration bill passed its first reading. Um, it's been described as deeply controversial, but only by the likes of Gary Lineker. Uh, I don't think anybody sensible thinks it's deeply controversial. Um, although one Theresa May, former prime minister of this parish, apparently wanted to put some amendments attached onto it. Let's find out from Craig uh, how it went. The win was uh, a majority of 62, 312 to 250. I'm assuming, Craig, that most of the uh, Labour benches didn't vote for it. Um, but uh, it's a good start, is it not? It is. Obviously, second reading, it's the start of a long process. Uh, and there's bound to be loads of amendments put in then it's got to go to the house of lords and all of that uh, palaver that we always see i mean what is quite remarkable about all this particularly listening to the opposite benches labor and the smp i mean there was some quite fruity language floating around last night uh one of the smps were calling uh across the chamber calling us absolute scumbags that's nice. uh, the usual, you know, you're, you're all racist, you're all nasty. I mean, it, it, it's strange that they seem to have fallen into the trap that uh, anybody who is coming across the channel by this irregular means, I mean, there's nothing more irregular than getting on a small dinghy across the channel. Uh, they tend to believe that everybody is valid. Everybody is a genuine immigrant seeking um, help and escaping persecution. Well, yeah, perhaps they were at the start of their journey, but they certainly weren't when they were mulling mm. uh, around in France, considering their options. So, you know, I, I think that goes to the heart of right. this. I mean, well, they also the con purpose, they conveniently the forget, Craig, don't they conveniently forget as well that this business is being run by people traffickers who make an absolute fortune ferrying illegal uh, immigrants into this country. And that's the reason why it's increased by so many numbers, because it's so lucrative. Well, absolutely. I think it's probably eclipsing the drugs trade. At the I think moment. it is, yeah. Uh, and then you've got to wonder where all this uh, cash, all cash, of course, no credit cards, all cash, uh, where that ends up, um, particularly into the, you know, just the general criminality chain, which might then be financing, you know, drug trade, uh, prostitution, and all the rest of it that goes with the mm. underground economy. But, uh, you know, I think there was a very clear and stark difference seen in the House yesterday. The Conservatives very much on side with this. Obviously, some are have some concerns, particularly about how we deal with uh, unaccompanied children. That's a you know, valid concern. I think that would be uh, something that all of us would have worries about. But, you know, the divide couldn't be more clear. Labour were saying that, you know, we, we oppose all of this. Everybody who comes across is genuine. Uh, they've all got to be given a warm welcome and a red carpet. Well, I'm sorry, that that's just, is not what the people of this country are saying to me in my constituency, and I'm sure across the entirety of the nation. And the SNP, as ever, were, were you know, playing their sort of blowhard games. 
And it was pointed out by the Home Secretary, quite an interesting fact, I thought, that uh, Scotland has 8% of the UK population, but has only accepted 1% of the uh, the migrants mm. that are ha having to be housed in, in just about every single constituency. So, you know, their sort of Balani and blather and reality are very, very much removed. But this is, you know, this is legislation we need, uh, whether it will stand up to the ECHR and the pronouncements of that court that seems to be evolving and developing its arguments on a regular basis. Yeah. So you don't quite know where you are. They all seem to point to international law as if it's some font of all knowledge. It makes me wonder why some parliamentarians are actually there at all, because yeah. they don't actually believe in the sovereignty of uh, their own actions. They they somehow believe that some uh, judges abroad and everybody else is is at a higher level than themselves, which yeah. is rather bizarre. Uh, you know, I'm here to actually uphold the sovereignty of this nation to deliver for my constituents. And this is a very clear and present issue uh, for all of us. Now, I, I hope none of this will ever be needed to be used. And I'll tell you why is because this is meant to have a deterrent effect. This is meant to stop people making that crossing in the first place. And in, if we can stop that, it will actually save lives. We've seen deaths in the mm. channel. They're all unnecessary deaths. But I will repeat once again, Mike, which I always say to you and others, the French could stop this in a fortnight. Uh, you, you, you're not telling me that France, an advanced military nation, one of the, you know, the serious military nations of Europe, uh, they projected power into West Africa to try and settle down Mali, yeah. the entire country, but they don't seem to be able to patrol plus or minus three miles from Calais. Yeah. And I find that uh, you know, scarcely believable because this trade could be closed down in a fortnight if all beach launchings were stopped, the illegal trade would stop, the deaths in the channel would stop, and this whole problem would, would go yeah. overnight. And I've, I've just struggled to understand why they're not really stepping up to the plate to do that. Well, I don't think they can. Well, I know I the mean, PM I don't, was, I mean, I don't was blame with Macron them. last week and trying to get a, a new deal and all the rest of it. You know, that, that that's all good stuff and, and pleasing to hear. But that, to me, would be the easiest way of stopping this. We can get to a settled situation and then have a proper discussion about uh, how we look after those who are in genuine need and most certainly not looking after Albanians coming from a safe European country, a NATO mm. member, an EU applicant member, a signature of the ECHR themselves. I think those are the, the, the low-hanging fruit that the Home Secretary can address, and I'm looking for success on the back of this bill. Yeah, I mean, I was hopeful the Rwanda um, manoeuvrings were going to be a deterrent, but because they never really got underway, they didn't become one. But I, I, my worry about the, the, the ECHR is that a lot of countries in Europe are still uh, signatories to it, but they don't pay much attention to it. And we alone seem to be the ones that pay the most attention to it. I mean, we could use them as a bit of a guideline rather than as uh, an absolute rule. But we seem to take their word for things more than other European countries do, because Germany and Sweden, for example, don't allow people from Albania to seek asylum in their countries. They kick them straight back. Yeah, well, there's this rather peculiar Rule 39, which has been in a new evolution of the ECHR. Uh, it wasn't something we particularly signed up to when the ECHR was being put together and all of those conventions. And this is a judge in chambers. Uh, sitting alone, just looking over paperwork, don't even know who the judge was, actually dictated that the Rwanda scheme couldn't work. And mm. that was the reason uh, that the plane didn't take off. Right. Now, we comply with 80% of these Rule 39 judgments. Germany complies with just 60%, and Spain complies with 40%. Mm. Uh, so it, it makes me wonder what sort of you know judicial activism is at play here. 
And you're quite right. We tend to go along with every sort of dotting of I's and crossing of T's of everything that's uh, told to us by the ECHR. But it seems other nations don't. And the other peculiarity, Mike, is that if you go through the you know, long and circuitous process of going through the uh, as asylum claim, which in itself is far too long and the Home Office needs to up its game on that, you're likely to have a 76 percent chance of a yes at the end of that process. The EU average is 16, the same 1951 convention, the same ECHR, and yet their legal processes come out with a 16% a yes. Mm. I'd be quite comfortable with that, you know. Uh, so I don't always look at the ECHR as the total bogeyman, uh, because other European nations look at that and take it on board and say, yep, well, that's fine, we listen, we're here, uh, but we're going to do our own thing. Thank you very much. Now, I, I would say that is an area as well that we need to look at very closely. But we need to stop these irregular crossings. 45,000 last year. Estimates are, if nothing was done, that could be 80,000 this year. I mean, my constituency, all constituencies, are housing uh, in a large numbers of, of migrants, usually young men with money in their pocket. That's the way they've paid the people, traffickers. That is not a way that we run an asylum system. It and really we, have to, we have to tease out who are the genuine asylum seekers, which, frankly, are getting crowded out mm. by this um, chaos, I'd call it chaos, uh, in favour of those who've got money in their pocket, pay the people traf traffickers and get to the front of the queue. Yeah. That's not right. That's not fair. And one of the things that we always hear from those who advocate the, the, sort of the free movement of anyone who wishes to come here is that, well, you know, nearly 80% of them actually get their asylum claims eventually okayed. And the reason for that is not because they qualify, but they do. It's because the system is so easy to qualify for, isn't it? Because, you know, they'll either have family members here or they can say that uh, they're going to be tortured if they go home. My, I say this to, to people that was a story in The Sun. My favourite case at the moment is a guy who runs a car wash in um, Leicester who's an Albanian and apparently he can't be sent home because he fears that he would be murdered by his wife's family and when he was asked why would that happen he went well because I murdered her and you're kind of going sorry uh, what the hell is he doing here and why is he running a car wash well and also we see this um, whenever we try and we have been actually quite successful of getting rid of uh, those who have been charged with serious offences, been in prison and uh, are going to be repatriated. We see Labour, uh, including Keir Starmer at the time, signing letters saying how dreadful it all is that we, we dare to uh, try and uh, deport a, a rapist that's done his sentence mm. in the UK. I mean, you could barely make this up. But, you know, what is important here, there's a very clear divide between what the Conservative Party wants and what Labour seem to want, which I have to say is open borders. Mm. And everything that they say and do and sign and, and the language they use just leads me to that very inescapable conclusion yes. that they're very relaxed about open borders. I'm not. Conservative Party isn't. And we're, you know, we're hoping that this will actually solve it. Uh, of course, there's, there's lots of lumps and bumps on the way. But uh, this is tough legislation. It completely puts things on its head that there is now a duty, if, if this legislation goes through, a duty on the Home Secretary to deport. That is the first duty, yeah. unless there are reasons why that shouldn't happen. That's very different from where we've been in the past. Well, we I know. mean, I've said the Rwanda scheme isn't ideal, uh, but when you're short of tools in the box, you tend to use a you know a box spanner when the, the perfect one might have been mm. you know, better still. But you, we've got what we've got. Uh, the tools are limited. Uh, the French have not stopped all the beach launchings. 
we've got to have another deterrent level. And this is uh, primarily deemed to be a deterrent. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, as far as the whole kind of um, poisoning of the well, if you like, of political discourse, because we now have very clearly in the wake of the Gary Lineker uh, situation, uh, a group of people who will say, uh, that because they disagree with you or because they uh, see what your policy is as a Tory party is somehow racist or bigoted or in, in some way cruel, um, you know, that we have, we have this kind of ridiculous divide now. I don't know what you make of the whole BBC situation um, and, and feel free to tell me, but, but why have we got to this point where people can't disagree anymore without thinking that the other person is somehow a bad person because they don't agree with you? Well, I'm afraid this is the, the result of social media, I'm sure. And I don't want to be some sort of Luddite, but I'm, I'm sure <laughs> when we look back at this period of, of humanity, we'll say, well, what, was, what were the worst inventions on the planet? Yeah. Well, probably number one, nuclear weapons. Number two, those annoying little clips that come when you, you put your things in for dry cleaning, yeah. you know, the little plastic clips, I oh, find yeah. them thoroughly annoying. <laughs> and the third one will be social media. Yeah. Social media, I think, is a waste of uh, a lot of people's time, particularly youngsters causing uh, mental health issues. And it's, it's raising this level of debate to pure nastiness. Mm. Now, I don't think for one moment that the majority of this country actually uh, subscribe to you know that Gary Lineker view of the world, that no. what we're trying to achieve is somehow linked to uh, the rise of Nazism in the 1930s. I think that's what caused the upset for me. But just you know, think of this very carefully. I, you know, I have employees as uh, a parliamentarian. They are there to do casework mm. and to look after uh, my constituents and, and, and do lots more besides. If one of them went off on a tangent and was sort of tweeting out how dreadful I am, how dreadful the Conservative Party is, uh, and, and was really anti my, my agenda and, and who they're working for, you know, frankly, I don't think they'd last too long. So why are we accepting this from the highest paid presenter uh, at the BBC, mm. whose huge Twitter following, over 8 million followers, is really on the back of his position and status within the BBC. So they're, they're intertwined. Yes. So, you know, I don't mind him having a political view. Of course not. Everybody's got a right to a political view. But I think there are barriers. And on this example, I think he crossed that barrier. Um, but the BBC seemed to have, um, you know, accepted, well, yep, yep, sorry, Gary, we'll let you back. And... Um, Please be good, but um, yeah, we're not going to do too much about it. No, I mean, I'm a bit disappointed by that. Frankly. Yeah, I am as well. I think I think it's an absolute shambles, and I'm also told that BBC management have really hung out to dry the woman uh, who is the lead. Um, of, at BBC Sport, who's going to be blamed for all sorts of things. Um, I think her name's Barbara Slater. Um, and then now we look and see what's happened to Fiona Bruce, who made a relatively innocent yeah. comment. You know, there's this kind of you know witch hunt mentality seemingly going on inside the BBC, um, and it just it can't carry on like that. No, well, we've created this sort of echo chamber that just gets louder and louder, really founded yeah. around. Uh, social media. But yeah, the Fiona Bruce story was truly remarkable. I think she, what she was trying to say was to protect the sort of legal position mm. of the yeah, BBC. Exactly. Uh, uh, and in so doing, she's been accused of you know somehow not being quite strong enough on domestic violence issues. This is getting seriously out of hand. Mm. Uh, it's all part of the woke agenda, the I know best, uh, the, you know, the changing of the fabric and culture of the UK, which I think is a very happy and settled place. Mm. It's actually become rather more divided uh, by a lot of these activities. And I think it's all rather sad, but it doesn't chime with the normal people, the normal people who listen to your show, who, you know, who are inhabitants of Southland in my constituency. They think all oh, this is rather nonsensical. Mm. They want to get on with their lives, have a chat down the pub, 
uh, and and do what normal people do. Uh, they're not really interested in this echo chamber of uh, lovey lefties, yeah. which I'm afraid seem to dominate these days. No, indeed. Craig, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Craig McKinley, Conservative MP for South Thanet, making perfect sense. Um, if you like common sense, you'll like what we do here at Talk TV uh, because the vote did go in favour of the government, 312 to 250. Uh, this is on the uh, illegal immigration bill. Passed the first reading in the Commons. It will now have a second reading. People will try and attach various things to it, like various amendments. Theresa May wants to attach an amendment about unaccompanied children. But it looks as though they are on their way to getting it through. Um, they've got to get it through the House of Lords, of course, as well, which won't be easy. But the point is this. This is what the people of this country want. It's not what Gary Lineker wants, but then not many people can afford what Gary Lineker has. I think his shoes cost more than most people's houses. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. And don't forget, there is a daily podcast now available for this show. Uh, if you haven't done it yet, go and subscribe to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham podcast so you never miss a moment from the show. You can subscribe and download it now from wherever you get your podcast. We're going to be talking shortly uh, to um, a man who knows a thing or two about whiskey from the Scotch Whiskey Association, Mark Kent, uh, ahead of the UK budget. Uh, but Eleanor Williams has just been sentenced to a total of eight and a half years uh, in prison for perver perverting the course of justice over false allegations that she made uh, of grooming and sexual abuse. She accused three men of raping her. Uh, they had their lives ruined by that allegation. Uh, she's now been sentenced to eight and a half years in prison for perverting the course of justice. So um, uh, we'll bring you any more updates on that uh, as and when it happens. But uh, coming up, uh, as I say, the budget is coming tomorrow. Um, lots of people are going to be focusing on what the pensions situation is going to be. We'll talk about that in a little while, whether the fuel duty will remain what it is, whether it will still remain uh, with 5p off, or whether it's going to go up anywhere. Corporation tax likely to go up. But of course, many things that are affected by uh, the, um, uh, the budget uh, are things that we buy on an everyday basis or things that we purchase certainly once in a while and whiskey for a lot of people is one of those things let's talk now to mark kent chief executive of the scotch whiskey association mark a very good uh, afternoon to you good afternoon mike thanks very much indeed for, for joining us it's that time of the year again when uh, the chancellor gets up there was a time when he used to get up with a glass of whiskey but i suppose that's uh, not as a bit unwoke these days so you probably won't have that anymore um what are you uh, what are you preparing yourselves for what's uh, what's the state of the industry as it is now Oh, I think he's frozen. Um, just in time for the um, uh, the whiskey to set in, because after the twelve o'clock hour, and there is always an opportunity if you so wish to have a glass of scotch. I think he's back. Are you back, Mark? I I can I can hear you and see you perfectly. Mike. Okay, good. Uh, so, uh, so tell us, I mean, what are you, what are you preparing yourself for for tomorrow? Well, I mean, this government had promised to ensure that the tax system uh, was fair and delivering for Scotch whiskey, and that's what we still want to see. Um, Tax, uh, tax freezes have brought in extra revenue for the, for the exchequer. And uh, it makes sense to support Scotch at this moment when we've been through a very difficult period uh, post-COVID, uh, supply chain pressures, uh, inflation, cost of living crisis, and energy costs going through the roof. So uh, it's time, I think, to, uh, to support the Scotch industry. Yes. I mean, it's still a very robust industry, isn't it? It's still a very popular beverage around the world. It's, it's, it's a great success story. It's a great British success story, a great Scottish success story. I mean, it's quintessentially Scottish, but it's also a global product. We're the biggest food and drink export of the UK. 
uh, and we make a, a big contribution to the UK economy. So 42,000 jobs and 95% of our supply chain is based in the UK. Right. And, uh, and we hope that the, uh, the, the Chancellor and the government will support us in the way that other countries support their national drinks, like the French or the, the Spanish. Yes. So, I mean, as far as you're in, I know it's always difficult to know what the plans are likely to be from any given Chancellor, but he does, Jeremy Hunt does look like the kind of guy that's looking to, to nip and tuck as much money from people as possible. Um, can he put any more duty on whiskey? Well, whiskey is taxed at 70% per bottle mm. average. Uh, so that's basically three pounds that's of every ridiculous, four pounds isn't it? spend on scotch is tax. Right. You know, and, uh, and we are the highest taxed nation for spirits in the G7 and something like 60% higher than the average across the EU. So, I mean, we already are, are sort of creaking under the, 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 the weight of the tax burden. Yeah, that sounds worse than fuel tax. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's seriously high, Mike. And so, so what we would like to see is the continuation of the freeze, especially in this moment where, you know, we, we are still in the, in the period of recovery. Look at uh, the jobs that we create, not just in the supply chain, but in hospitality, in tourism. And, uh, and we hope the government will be backing one of our most successful industries. Yes, I mean, you would like to see that. But uh, as I say, we'll, uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. And what about the influx of some of the other countries that are now manufacturing scotch? Because uh, they're not making scotch whiskey, but they're making whiskey. I mean, obviously, we've, we've known about Ireland for a long time, but there's an awful lot of whiskey being made around the world now, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, whiskey is, a, is, a, is an iconic product. I'm glad to say that scotch still is, is the leader uh, and we sell more than um, uh, the Irish and the Canadians and the US combined. And so we're still, you know, we export 90% of what we, what we produce and uh, the, the, the demand and the appetite for scotch across the world continues to grow. Mm. Yeah, and that's a very good thing. It can only be a good thing for the uh, uh, for the country's economy as well. Um, Mark, very good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Kent, the chief executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association. Uh, whiskey, imagine that. 70% of what you pay to buy scotch is actually tax. That's bonkers, isn't it? I mean, how much more money does this government want? How much more money can they squeeze out of us? The budget's happening tomorrow. We'll bring it to you live right here on the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. But I tell you what, you can't be feeling terribly optimistic about it, can you? 0344 499 1000. We'll take more of your calls. We'll give you some more information about what's likely to happen uh, to your pension pot as well, uh, which, if you're in the public sector, is a lot better off than the one in the private sector. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.